Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. Hello, and welcome to That Got Me Thinking. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ellie Newman. And this week, I've been thinking about preconceived notions and the impact they have on our perceptions, choices, and behavior. I've been thinking about pioneers and big business, about the influence a powerful individual or conglomerate's agenda can have on an entire nation. I've been thinking about positive change and how difficult it can be to overcome an entrenched belief once we're convinced of its veracity, even in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. It's hard to just let go of any thought once we've adopted it as our own. It becomes interweaved with our identity and we build a web of consistent supporting beliefs around it as a security net that keeps us feeling safe, even when in fact it's contrary to our own best interests. My guest today is Kathleen Tracy. She is the author of over a hundred books. She's written biographies and in the fields of history, business, and technology. And her most recent endeavor appears to be a combination of all of the above. Her new book, of which she is a co-author, is The Great Green Gold Rush, compelling stories of gifted professionals who are on one of the greatest rides in the history of free enterprise. Welcome, Kathleen, and thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you. This is going to be an incredible conversation. And um, I want to start talking about the book as far as the idea of free enterprise. But before that, something you and I were chatting about just for an instant before we started recording was your level of expertise in this area. And I'm convinced that after writing a book, it's pretty deep. But how did you come about writing this book? Um, To be honest, I was uh, asked to. Um, As you mentioned, I've been around the block a few times as far as writing books. It's um, been doing it for a while. And in this case, uh, the co-author asked me if I would like to participate in it, uh, Michael Caldwell, and I said, absolutely. It sounded like an interesting project, and it also seemed really timely and topical. So what does that entail to, to, as an author, as a writer, to just be introduced to a topic that you may not have had much knowledge about prior and to just completely dive in? Well, I think that's what I like most about both journalism and writing books is that it's actually more research than anything else. I always say that it's about 60% research and 40% writing. And it usually takes longer to research a book than it actually does to physically write it. Um, you, you start out basically tabula rasa. You just start reading. You uh, have whatever you already have in your mind, but you just... Thank God for the internet. I don't have to spend many hours gathering dust in libraries anymore, so I can do most of it at home. You look up topics, you look up people, you follow news, anywhere you can get it, just so that you kind of absorb as much as you can before you then go and talk to the people who are going to be part of the book. Because it's always nice to sound like you halfway know what you're talking about when you're interviewing somebody. So it's a lot of reading, a lot of thinking and just absorbing as much as you can of the topic. And was this a topic that you had thought you were fairly versed on before you started the research and started the interviews? Were there surprises along the way, and were they big surprises as far as what you learned? Well, I live in Southern California, so this has been a big topic here for a while, especially uh, because this past election, California voted to legalize, and it's been a movement in, in this state. And California probably has the oldest established cannabis business in the country. Now, granted, it's been illegal most of that time, but it dates back 100 years. So I think just living here, you kind of, I don't want to say uh, it's the, the editorial equivalent of a contact high, but you kind of like just absorb it because it's in the papers all the time, and it's an issue here. It's it's also big business here. So, but I did, there were things obviously that you learned that you, that you didn't know some, some things more quirky than others, but just from the practical matter of how entrepreneurs and the cannabis industry is cannabis industry is very big on local and on small growers and, 
and mom and pop shops, you know, how it impacts them and how how that structure and infrastructure works. I wasn't quite aware of that. So I want to set the stage for our conversation a little bit about, you know, when, when I read about the greatest ride in the history of free enterprise, I was thinking, okay, how free still is this enterprise? It's still locked down um, in a lot of areas, and it's certainly breaking free of those chains, but at the moment it's locked down. So maybe we can set the stage as far as what is legal right now? Um, and we can start in California. What is legal in California? Well, California was the first state to pass um, medical marijuana. It's so um, that means that anybody with a prescription can go to their local dispensary and buy whatever product they want. And the products range from actual cannabis buds to oils to edibles to all sorts of things actually there's a kind of an astonishingly wide variety of of products that they make now um and and what does it take to get a prescription a doctor and it can be prescription for anything it can be because you're taking chemo it can be because you have glycoma it can be because you're stressed out and you don't want to be on Valium and Prozac, and so you would prefer a more holistic, natural um, medication. So I did hear many stories of people who had been on pills for years and who, once they started taking CBD oil and these other extracts, were able to wean themselves off of their prescription medication. The... I was thinking about that. I was thinking how many people are are taking sleeping pills every night. Right. And when you do the comparison, you think if that were the option, what would I choose? Yeah. And what's interesting, I kind of knew this because when you travel to Amsterdam, it's almost easier to to get marijuana there than it is, you know, a jack and diet. But you have different types of cannabis. They They can control how much THC is in it. So it's not like fast times at Ridgemont High where somebody smokes and then they're, you know, laying on the floor, you know, seeing dancing elephants. They control it so that if if there's a special one for nausea, there's one if you're having problems eating, there's one if you have problems sleeping because they can control the chemical compounds of it. So it's gotten a lot more scientific. It would be even more scientific and more valuable if there could be legal research on it. There still is not. That is still a no-no as far as the federal government goes. And how big of an industry is it currently, dollar-wise? Honestly, I don't know. But they say in Cal- they say in California it's over a billion dollars. I don't. It's it's hard to track people. Even now, if you are a owner of a legal dispensary, you cannot have a bank account. So it's a completely cash business. All of this is estimates. Uh, they pay taxes, they do that, but you are not allowed to have a bank account if you are in the cannabis business, even if it is medical marijuana, which is legal in your state. There seem to be just so many contradictions as far as the rules and regulations and the pathways to getting to to legality in all different areas, and we'll, we'll dive a little deeper into that. Um, but I want to talk about, as I was so interesting, this is an area that I was ignorant about um, and learned from reading the book is when cannabis became illegal and what had led to its fall from grace. So maybe if you could just give a quick summary of that. Well, there's the, I mean, there are some accounts that are a bit more conspiracy theorists than others. Um, Which I must say, I tend to not be a conspiracy (laughs) theorist, but these days I'm like, oh yeah, I'm buying that. Absolutely. It was the industrialists and it was immigrant control. Like we have... We have it playing out in front of us in in such clear view that I think any doubt I may have had in that argument, I was like eating it up. Well, there are two there are two forks in the road on this. There's the kind of the confluence. One was that back in the day, back in let's say the 30s, um, as you had the migration from the south of blacks coming north, 
you also had, as is historically known, you also had, you know, the dispersion of the blues. Many black musicians came up. You had black culture coming up that included the blues and jazz and all that. Musicians were very much known to partake of cannabis. And by making cannabis illegal, it was a way to make it to keep blacks from voting. Because if you got arrested for cannabis, you had your... The, the right to vote was taken away from you. So there's that aspect. In the southern states, say more west, the target were Mexicans who also socially and culturally indulged in cannabis. And by making it illegal, it was a way to also control that culture. So the background of the illegality is that it was a way to control minorities by the people currently then in power. Well, also, I thought, and and I think it's a very compelling argument. I was joking about it. I think it's very compelling. The industrialists at the time, um, I you know, it's a fact that when Ford was designing the automobile, he had a meeting with a number of his cronies and kind of to decide what it would run on. And the only reason he chose fossil fuel even though it was the dirtiest of the options, was because his pal had a huge company and would, would benefit greatly. And it makes a lot of sense as you read more through thoroughly through the book that the industrialists at the time, whether it was the DuPonts and Hearst or whoever it might have been, that it wasn't in their best interests be, for hemp and its capabilities to be, to be developed and, and exploited. Well, I think legacy companies, that's always true. I mean, the the number of products that can be made out of this plant is is kind of mind-boggling everything from um plastics that will that will go into the ground let's say in in months rather than years or decades or eons it's oil and in fact you mentioned ford ford actually made um parts of his car body out of hemp back then and in currently in Europe, I know BMW does, and possibly other ones also use um, hemp to make their plastics for their cars. It's it's got a it's a really handy plant to have around. But well, and that was something I hadn't thought about in sort of my internal history of the development of marijuana, sort of what it was like and how it was used before it became illegal, and that it was so prevalent and that it did have so many uses. And, and a, a positive, a, oh. a positive um, image as well. There's a belief by some that part of the reason you have seen, say, obesity in this country increase in certain health problems is that uh, they used to feed hemp to to livestock, the CBD oils and all of that. They got there. There's, in from what I've read. Our bodies have receptors in it for CBD. It's almost like a natural, considered almost like a vitamin. And we're being deprived of that because our livestock no longer gets fed it, so it's no longer in our food chain. It's negatively infect- affecting health. And all of this came about because once hemp became, once cannabis became illegal, that included both the hemp and, you know, the 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 plants that people would smoke or use to as a drug it upset our our balance of nature basically which i have to say i think bodes well for the believers of the conspiracy theory because why (laughs) make all of it illegal you know that you have to look at that what was the why behind that why not just make the 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 drug element of it illegal if that was what the concern actually was so let if you will, distinguish between those elements within the plant, the CBD and the THC. Well, I mean, it's it's a plant, but um, it depends what part of the plant you're talking about. I mean, hemp can be used, hemp, which is not the part that people would smoke or ingest. It can be used for uh, to make clothing. It can be used, that's the part that can be used to make plastics. It can... Um, there's, if you notice, they actually have like hemp milk out there in your food stores. And then you have the part of the plant that can be bred to have high THC levels. 
THC is made of compounds called CBDs and a bunch of other things. So they can extract these various compounds from the plant. And it's a matter of, you know, it's like a matter of dosage. Again, this has been done by people who are working outside of, you know, established, you know, let's say approved government sanctions because it's not legal in this country to to research with it yet. It's still classified along with heroin and cocaine. Now, and what's interesting is there's no known case of they do not believe that it's addictive. More people die from alcohol than have ever even come close to dying from from cannabis. You really don't hear of cannabis overdoses. You don't hear of cannabis addiction. You don't hear of, but yet alcohol is sold as a commodity because, quite frankly, it's, you know, there's a certain level where people have to be given the responsibility of making a choice of whether they want to, you know, partake of something or not. And, but there's no, there's no proof anywhere that cannabis is any more problematic than alcohol, probably less. And yet it remains right up there with heroin and, other uh, controlled substances, and nobody can really give a good reason why. It's just that's the way it is, and you, they just tried again, I think, a year and a half ago to have, or actually it was in 2016, to have it rescheduled, and the FDA declined. Right. So it's to somebody's benefit. We may not have it on our shoes <laughs> yet. And before we jump to the present completely, I mean, we can pin it on Angslinger and the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. So so what was his motivation, do you think, from the research you've done um, to be such a, um advocate for making marijuana illegal? I'm sorry, I didn't hear. I, um, I couldn't hear who you said who. Uh, Anslinger, who was behind the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, seemed to be the driving force. Do you know, I believe we uh, we actually do cover that in the book. My short-term memory is going. Um, it seems to me that, it again, it had to do with what you were talking about before, political influences and who would benefit from it and what politicians would benefit from it and who in industry. It's it's kind of like you could, you could equate it with the energy industry. I mean, why didn't the oil companies – see the writing on the wall and 10 years ago and say, you know what, we're going to be the green billionaires. We're going to be the ones that are going to save the earth because they're a legacy company. They don't want to change the infrastructure. So they keep going for fossil fuels, even though everything points to that we need sustainable energy. It's, it's, it's odd, it, isn't it? It <laughs> is odd. I mean, if you look at any part of our country, you think, all right, we could either put money into education and do a better job at education, or we can build more prisons. Oh, you know what? We'll just build the prisons. <laughs> We're good at that. We know how to do that. That's an easy fix. Yeah, it, it's odd. Until it is in, even beyond in our face, we seem to want to like, no, 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 it'll, it'll all work out. We'll just keep doing what we're doing. And, you know, actually, it, it, energy is a big issue among the cannabis growers because when you're in a state, say like California, where it's illegal, where do people go to grow it? Well, inside. Well, if you grow it inside, you have to use all kinds of electricity. And there's an estimate that 9% of all of the energy used in California goes was going towards the production of illegal cannabis. But there are – there's this one gentleman who's actually – um profiled in the book, he's come up with greenhouses to where it'll be completely sustainable. No energy will be needed. So within the cannabis community, they're aware that they have a problem as far as the amount of electricity being used in their carbon footprint. So one of the big things about becoming legal is that they're able to come up with these solutions so that they will be a sustainable green industry, which is great. You mentioned that you can buy milk and you'll see hemp milk in your supermarket and health food stores. Um, and you, the U.S. is currently the largest importer and consumer, but we don't grow it. Right. That seems odd. It goes back. To, they've tried. I mean, there's a bill in Congress, I believe, right now called the uh, – it has to do with 
being able to farm hemp. And naturally, the farmers of this country would love it. It's uh, it's a good crop to grow. It doesn't deplete the soil too much. If you have, if you wanted to add it to your rotation, it's a money crop. Also, it would benefit the economy and certainly farmers astronomically. But you've got to get past this notion that it's the gateway drug, you know, to to every evil out there, which is, I know that when I was growing up, that's all you heard. It was a gateway drug. If you start with that, you're going to end up in Skid Row with a needle hanging out of your arm. And, There's and, absolutely and, no proof to that. And, and is hemp a gateway <laughs> crop? Is that yeah. the pushback there? Is that why the Industrial Hemp Farming Act hasn't passed yet and may not pass? Because it's the gateway crop. It's too closely related to the drug, or is there are there other factors at work well, that are keeping it? I think it that in they food? say that if if you do that, it's a slippery slope because it's the same plant. So if you do that, then people can. It's it. There's no rational. There's no rationale for it. And if you really press people, then the argument they're going to go is we cannot expose our teenagers to having this around. Well, I hate to tell them, but teenagers have been the one that have had access to it probably more than anybody for the last fifty years. It, it, there's, there is no statistical proof that more teenagers are consuming cannabis now than they were than when I was in high school. In fact, it might be less, actually. And that making it illegal has not kept them from being able to obtain it. So it, that clearly has not been working since 1937. Did um, prohibition keep people from right? drinking alcohol? No. So let's talk about because I think all of this, like like most of these types of topics we talk about, there's a there's misinformation and a lack of information. So let's provide a little bit, at least sing the praises of the uses of hemp. So you've mentioned a couple. We've got biofuel, cheap plastics. It's biodegradable. Um, it there are jobs that will be created if we can manufacture, especially since we're the largest importer. Um, we can start exporting it. Uh, the issues of coal production and the pollution it causes and also the towns that have been decimated by losing that industry. Am I missing anything? <laughs> no, I mean, other than um, even peripherals beyond that, um, there's a company back east. All they do is make the little jars and the baggies that it's sold in. And they're very clever. Um Anything from jars like that have little, they have a little mustache logo on it because that's your stash jar, um, to baggies that prevent any odor from coming out. So you have peripherals out there that kind of keep like, you know, the ripples in the lake going out of more cottage industries that can start because of this particular commodity. Well, and you, I think, did a fantastic job in the book of profiling a number of those cottage industries and some you you know you are you might not think of the law firms the data collecting agencies um, one of them was Arcview Troy Dayton founded a funding company to build the legal cannabis industry he says because we're finding ways to create a profitable responsible and politically engaged cannabis industry and it's growing. What were some of the ahas you had in dealing with or, or interviewing some of these people at the forefront of these new cottage industries? Did you say what aha moments? Is that what well, you yeah, said? or you know, I, I mean, I the the law firms was something I certainly hadn't thought of. That there were law firms that had decided to dedicate all of their um, resources to just focusing on this new industry. Well, what's funny about the law firms is that you would, in my head, it would be, well, they're they're representing somebody who's been dragged into court, all that. No, it's actually kind of rather dry law as in land and contract law. A commercial law, it's the worst. Right, because <laughs> you've got, in Arizona, once they passed the medical, their medical marijuana law, they split the state up into grids, into little squares. And each little square were allowed X number of licenses. So if your little square was in the middle of this, you know, Sonoran Desert, you were competing against maybe four other people. If it was in the middle of Scottsdale, you've got a lot one. But 
one of the provisions was you had to have land. You had to own a piece of land. So mo- much of what they do doesn't have to do with their clients being in any kind of legal trouble. It's contract law, but it's a major component of it. And yes, they have if you do get hauled into court, of course, they can do that. But mo- mostly it's just the business end of it. In while most people think that's a good thing, there are the mom and pop guys who are around and, you know, who's been in the business under the radar. Once it's become legal, it means that they're really more businessmen than outlaws anymore. So the one guy said he never thought that he would be carrying around his, you know, his iPhone and a briefcase and a clipboard instead of being able to be in his jeans out back tilling the soil. It's a it's a cultural change for a lot of people there. And many in the industry don't really know the first thing about business. So Arcview and there are a couple others, they help people learn what it takes to actually be a business person, what it actually takes to be a businessman. Part of their concern is when the, the drug is reclassified, they're worried that Big Pharma is going to come in and try to shove all the little guys out. So the little guys now are doing their best to establish a foothold so that they will be able to compete against big companies. There was an article in the LA Times that before the election, you had developers coming from out of state looking to buy land in anticipation that California was going to pass. Well, California growers did their best to prevent any of them from getting that. They want local growers to be able to benefit from California's laws. So there's there's a cultural change coming as well. But these companies are out there trying to help these small entrepreneurs understand what it's going to take to be sustainable and to succeed even when the competition gets greater. And more professional. So let's talk a little bit about the other products that are out there, uh, in addition to what comes from hemp. Um, So the supplement market is is huge and also one that's rife with regulations and conflicting (laughs) regulations and um, definitely needs some ingenuity as to how to navigate them and navigate around them. one of the companies that you talk about is Bluebird Botanicals. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the supplement area, what are they allowed to sell at this point? And in what type of products are we finding it? Well, they had to recent, they had to change their marketing. There was, um, uh, the FDA started sending out letters to people because if it, I could be wrong, but from my recollection is they can't, they can't claim that it's, um, it's the, su- it's the word supplement that's in there. Right. And They've, it was something like you yes. couldn't claim that it actually fixed something, but you could claim that it, you know, would, was relaxing or was. Right. You, you know, can't ha- say ha- that it has the benefits of a vitamin. You can't say anything like that. It's just that it, you know, it relieves your stress. It calms you. It, it does all that. There's a lot of, it, quite frankly, there's a lot of, it's, it's a, it's a moving target because they don't really know what the FDA is going to do next. And so rather than face a possible fine or face them saying you have to pull products from the shelves, they re- they basically rebranded how they market their their materials. I mean, they still have the, you know, the oils and the extracts, but they have to be careful on how they market it, what they say it can do for you. They basically can't say it does anything for you anymore. But But it can be in there and it can be sold. Yes, it At can be so But, I mean, even their testimonials, they have to be careful about what testimonials they publish on it. It's, it's the government spending a whole lot of time on something and a whole lot of money on something that does not make any logical sense. It's not hurting, certainly it's not hurting anybody. And why, why do you think the pharmaceutical industry hasn't jumped in at this point, at, at least in the supplement area? Well, again, because on a on a national level, it's illegal. I mean, even now you have 
a new attorney general saying he might crack down on, you know, on the states that have legalized it. Who knows if that'll that'll really happen. But as long as there's this uncertainty, as long as you can't have use a bank for proceeds from a cannabis industry, odds are Big Pharma is not going to get in it. Once that changes, then there's too much money on the table for big industry and big pharma not to want to get a piece of it. And if anything probably changes the FDA's mind and Congress's mind, it'll be lobbyists to that end. But hopefully by that time, your your local growers and your the people who are actually the pioneers in the industry will, will be well enough established and their brands will be well enough known and their quality will be well enough known that they'll be able to coexist. It's an interesting tipping point because I think it has pulleys on so many different sides. You think of what led McDonald's to stepping in and saying, oh, you know, we're going to have quality um, meat, chicken that's actually <laughs> the poultry family, um, you know, and, and these sort of things. And and so there's that, that um, push and pull for big pharma. Clearly the market's there. Clearly the industry is there. Um, and so what is it that pushes their lobbyists to say, all right, you know, we want to push for this to become legal because we, we want to get into this market? I think you're getting to the closest tipping point. Most of the people that I interviewed, their belief was that within 10 years, you were going to see it. You were going to see it legalized because it's the will of the public. 10 years ago, would people have believed that you have legalized gay marriage, that you have uh, – that there's no longer don't ask, don't tell in the military. Culture happens very fast. Change in culture happens very fast once there's that tilt, and then it just seems to roll downhill. I think – and everything points to that we are at that tilt in this country. Sure, there's going to be more conservative pockets. You know, there always is. My God, has the Deep South ever – been in the forefront of any cultural change, you know, willingly, but you've got enough of the masses, you know, that the general masses, the middle-class masses that think something, that is what generates change. And it, and when you look around the world, this seems like a really silly thing to like dig your heels on because it doesn't seem to be hurting anybody and it only seems to be benefiting both the user of it and the producer of it. Economically, it's viable. Environmentally, it's it's viable. It's clean. So there's no real downside except for those who say, oh, my God, we're going to raise, you know, our children are all going to be stoned and, you know. And you wonder if that whatever. really is even the actual thing that people are thinking or saying, you know, you wonder, really, I wonder how many people actually really are, that, that's what they're still afraid of, um, if they stop in to the, think you about mean it. In the real world? In the, the real, real world, in the real I world. I doubt it. Yeah. But, but, you, but, you know, there are, but it, it's you still have a segment of the, of the public who, who they, you know, they take what somebody says at, at face value, but, or, because it's playing on fears, you know, well, and, and the same I think fears. So, Someone mentions it in the book. It's been so many years of hearing the message of, of just say no, that it's a bad thing. Well, we're going to take a short break, and then I want to come back and talk a little bit about the how to reverse the decades of misinformation and that, that task for, for media and some people that are, are taking it on. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and we are speaking about the recent book, The Great Green Gold Rush, and authored by Michael Caldwell and Kathleen Tracy. And we're talking to Kathleen Tracy, and we'll be back in just a moment. This is KDPI 88.5 FM Ketchum, listener-supported radio. All right, we're back. And so, Kathleen, we're talking a little bit about the misinformation that's out there and the decades and more than decades of it that um, it's been out there. Uh, one of the companies that you talk about in, or talked to in the book is Greenflower Media. Yeah. And their approach to changing people's idea um, of, of whether or not cannabis is a good thing or a bad thing and, and what would be the utility of embracing it. Um, and what's the negativity from not embracing it, which seems to be a lot as well. Um, I thought it was very interesting. He 
from experience and then draws the parallel. And you just mentioned it, um, you know, 10 years ago, what we, we, we have thought of various things. And the thing that he talks about is Deepak Chopra and meditating and, and alternative health um, practitioners and these things that definitely were huge, you know, assigned the huge woo-woo factor and sort of discounted. Whereas now if you look at Deepak and Oprah's business, online it's a, a multi-million maybe a billion dollar business well it, in thinking of that the biggest pushback against let's say there's a uh, there's a company that's uh, a hospital that often has commercials on in california and one of their big things is that they're they, they're a cancer center and they don't just treat the disease they treat the whole body they offer chiropractic care they offer you know um, meditation, they offer all of that. The biggest pushback against wellness, what we now call wellness, which would include chiropractic and, you know, all of that, was the medical community. Because one, perhaps some of them really did think that maybe it wasn't good for their patients. But let's face it, probably the bigger thing is it cut into their business. So, so Max, Max Simon, the gentleman who runs Greenflower Media, he has experience with this. As you said, he worked he worked promoting the industry and education ed- educating people about an industry that many thought was, you know, one step away from Ouija boards. But science has proved out that there is a certainly a, a huge mental and emotional component to health. And in the same way, he's using he's using the lessons that he learned from that now to educate people about cannabis. And Greenflower Media offers all sorts of things. It's from the nuts and bolts about what is this plant to if you want to start growing, here's how you do it. So it's an across-the-board kind of um, virtual college, if you will. But it's one person at a time. Education is what will change hearts and minds. If people don't know any better, how can they make an informed choice? So they have to have the information out there that they can access so that they then can make an informed choice about what they think about this particular uh, substance. So let's talk a little bit more deeply now about the medical marijuana industry as it exists now. So you have dispensaries, and there's some complexity there as far as what they can and can't do and can and can't sell, whether or not they can or can't be growing their own. Like I was well, it depends. Care. It goes state by state. There's no, there's no standard in... In some states, you have to have a storefront to be able to grow. In other states, you have to grow your own plants to be able to have a storefront. Now, the key is, um, as one attorney was saying, in one of the states that she represents people, they don't say how many plants. So the guy has two plants outside back because he's really into the edibles. He wants to create edibles. So he has to have the plants there to be able to have his little edible shop. There's... And because it's 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 piecemeal state to state, it just really depends on where you are as to what rules you have to follow. Uh, and you just need to know what they are. Well, and let's talk about the edibles, because I think people who aren't familiar with the industry just think, oh, there's cookies and brownies and I can get high that way instead of smoking something. And that is not the edible market. And those are not the people primarily who are using uh, the edibles. Uh, you tell some stories about some people that got into the industry because they had sick relatives um, or, or friends with relatives who were really suffering and that these edibles became a, a real godsend for them. Yeah, it's um, a couple of the people, they, as you said, one had a uh, sick mother who couldn't eat, couldn't, couldn't sleep, couldn't keep food down. And a friend suggested, you know, why don't you, why don't you try this? And it was, I believe it was a chocolate bar. Uh, Chocolate bars uh, are quite popular uh, edible products. 
And she was able to, she was then able to sleep better. She was able to eat a little bit. And so her final days were much more comfortable with that. And that prompted him to get into the industry. Another gentleman who I had mentioned before, he had, he had taken a fall. He'd gotten to an accident while rock climbing and got hurt very badly and ended up like on pain medications and all of this. And then he developed and a um, huge so, number of pain medications. He was taking so, like twenty-three yeah, pills a right. day. Social anxiety because he was worried that if he and you know, if he had to take his pain medication, then he might have to run to the bathroom. And then, and he weaned himself off, you know, and basically kind of taught himself how to to make edibles. So there was it's a it's a health matter. It had nothing to do with you know recreational getting high. It had to do with being able to function. And being not in pain anymore. And so they have tinctures, they have uh, oil droplets, they have all sorts of different kind of, they call them candy bars, but they have little cakes. There's, and the reason they have that is so that people can ingest them and get help from them Uh one of the and get reliable the, help, right? Because that was something again that I thought was so important to understand is that this was a way to to meet out exactly a consistent dosage of this helpful. Well, among these among these companies, yes, that and again because because of the way that it's a little piecemeal right now, the a company's brand and reputation means everything. People go to one company because they know that they're going to get the same thing every time. It's not going to be hit or miss. And that is really important. One of the ways that our culture promotes ideas a lot or gets people more open to ideas is, for better or worse, through celebrity. Whoopi Goldberg has a big new line out there that was informed by her terrible menstrual cramps and the realization that many women have just debilitating cramps uh, once a month. And so she found that cannabis helped her and she's got this huge line out now of products. And suddenly if Whoopi does it, it goes more mainstream and people's attitudes change. And they realize it's again, it's not just about, you know, recreational high although for some people it is and just like for some people it's two scotches when they get off work but in many cases it's to alleviate pain without having to do it with hardcore pharmaceuticals that have all sorts of other side effects and as far as menstrual cramps go i mean the market is so slim you can either take a midol or an ibuprofen and those are pretty much your options or go get a hot water bottle well, Whoopi even uh, talked about that when she was pitching this idea to business people that they thought she was crazy, that uh, nobody would be interested. And she was like, half of the world's population are females. I think I can find somebody who would buy I the I think product. there may be a market. I'm guessing maybe the people <laughs> yeah. in the room were not female. It may have been men. But she's got products where it's like bath oils and, I mean, all sorts of different things, you know, topicals that you can put on. So... It, you can market the products in a number of ways to reach the people who are who will benefit most from it. So as more people get involved and more creativity gets involved, the more products there are so that people can get what exactly will help fix what ails them. And not even help fix, but help maybe alleviate some of the the symptoms that they have for whatever ails them. Well, I know there's a popular YouTube video on a gentleman who suffers from Parkinson's and he ingests marijuana for the first time, cannabis in some form. I'm not sure if he smokes it or, or eats something. And it's incredible to watch the tremors go away and he, 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 be, he becomes able to control his speech for the first time in, in a long time and just quiet his body. I mean, it does make you wonder if you if you were to force lawmakers to sit down and talk to these people, you would love to hear what they would say as to why they can't. And I guarantee you it has to do with, well, our young people, because I just I was just reading a quote from somebody, you know, saying, well, maybe, but we still, you know, it's, it's like it's like what, what was that? The music man, Demon Rum, kind of, you know 
keep the kids away from well and that somehow you're you're ruffling the feathers of the current system because the story you told about the rock climber who very proudly weaned himself off of 23 different pills he was taking every day um, and wasn't able to go out and had anxiety because he thought he might throw up in public and it, it just snowballed was so proud of himself he tells of, t- of tearing up one of his last prescriptions in the doctor's office and they said oh well you know now we won't be able to cover you any longer because right. you are doing something that we deem illegal or that wasn't approved wasn't by the approved, insurance company right. whatever yeah certainly there's a long way to it's I think from this vantage point, it seems like there's it, such it, a it, long way to go, but I'm not so sure that it that there is. I think once once cooler heads prevail, and once it is classified, it is reclassified, I think you'll see all of these industries fall in line. Because again, while their purpose might not be to actually help people, there's too much money on the table not for them to get this organized. Oh, absolutely. And in that case, you're thinking, well, who's steering the boat? Because certainly the doctor's objective, you would hope, would be to see this gentleman as healthy and happy as possible. Right. I don't think at this point it's it's doctors keeping it away. I, uh, I no. only, be, only because I know too many doctors who are more than happy to write a prescription uh, for it. And they're really... Any doctor will have seen the benefit from it, especially like an oncologist. They know the advantages that come to it. Or somebody who's treating somebody who has high anxiety. I mean, they see the benefits from it without having to go, again, on hardcore medication that destroys your liver or that you, your body constantly becomes more immune to. So you just have to keep taking more and more. Um, it's it, it boils down, again, to those legacy companies that stand to lose when the transition comes and but eventually it happens you really can't if you look back in our history you really can't stop this kind of progress you can slow it down certainly but just like meditation and wellness and all that eventually broke through and is now completely mainstream you can't really keep it back but what's kind of if not, if not immoral, then certainly uh, strains the ethics is to stand in the way of something that would help people not be in as much pain and would help people live better lives. So let's talk a little bit about what one of the characters in your book called the perfect storm of 2008 that changed sort of began the, the real change of the industry's participants. Um, and in one way, we've talked about a little bit bringing in all of these ancillary uh, participants as far as media and law firms and packaging people and branding people. Do you feel like we're on track? Steve D'Angelo, who you describe as the rock star of the industry, it's... forecasts that federal legality by 2020. Do you think we're still on, on track with that? And how have the players changed from what you've seen? Well, all you have to do is look who's sitting in Washington, D.C. as far as how the players have changed. But I think that the current, personally, this is a personal opinion, I think that the current administration could potentially slow it down. But since it has become a matter of state vote, at least at this point, I think that it's awfully hard to turn the tide now. I believe... I don't know how much it is now after the last election, but it seems to me more than half of the states in the union now have legalized medical marijuana. Uh, Eight states have legalized recreational marijuana in addition to medical marijuana. And and what is that? What is legalized recreational marijuana? It it means that you can walk into a dispensary and you can buy – uh, I think it's an ounce. Well, it, again, it varies state to state, but I believe in California they're talking about an ounce for personal use. You can then buy any of the edibles. You can buy the the tinctures. You can buy the CBD oils. You can you can buy whatever you want without a doctor's prescription. Um, yeah, and granted, there's laws need to catch up. 
there's discussion about some states on the books, while they have driving under the influence, they don't have a standard for, well, what would be driving under the influence if you've smoked a little marijuana? How much would have to be in your system? Um, society does have a tendency to change faster than laws do. Laws often do play catch up, but one has no doubts that they'll that they'll figure they'll figure that out. As well, they're talking about a skin patch test and all of that. But uh, uh, Alaska just—it's it, kind of funny the states that have gone for recreational uh, marijuana. You wouldn't think that Alaska, because it seems like a conservative state, but they were very pro recreational use and what they have done is where they're where the uh ship the cruise ships come in to port because it's a big cruise ship destination there's now a whole line of storefronts uh where visitors can go and buy their recreational marijuana uh, cannabis products and they're estimating it's going to just be a huge boon to their economy so again while some people are 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 advocates because it's a matter of people's health and wellness. Others are business people who just see this is an opportunity. It's a win-win. So when you have those kind of forces joining together, yes, I think Steve D'Angelo is right. It's inevitable. It will change. You're right. I think he said like 2020. Mm -hmm. Others say within 10 years. Um the point is nobody is saying mm, it's going to stop in its tracks and we're going to go back to uh, the day when we're arresting jazz musicians and keeping them from voting. But it, again, the current administration might try to slow the process, but I don't think that it can be stopped because we've, we've reached critical mass now in the country. And what you hope to see in Alaska, we've seen a little bit already in Oakland. Yeah, well, with o Oakland was the center of it. I mean, Oakland was kind of ground zero um, because of Steve and other activists up there. Although they were still raided um, not all that long ago uh, for no apparent reason, because they were pushing for the first time around when they tried when the ballot came up, um, the proposition came up to legalize marijuana recreationally but um the whole oaksterdam school and all of that that kind of set the standard for how to educate people it it the community that was there and again community is such a huge part of the cannabis lifestyle actually because many of them that's what it was it was their lifestyle they were they were working in something and doing something that they felt benefited people. You could almost say it was kind of, you know, hate Ashbury 2.0. I mean, it was, you know, the Bay Area has tended to be a catalyst for social change. And it was the same thing up there. And so they they had this university, almost like a, a warehouse for information, but also training center and um, connecting with other parts of the of the. Um, the world, not just the nation, and had hundreds of students and thousands online, and we're were raided by the federal government at one point. Correct. Yes, they were. Where they took, you know, they they took computers, they took documents, they took various things. Nobody was ever prosecuted. There was never any indictments handed down. It just. It almost was like just, a almost flex a show, of muscles, yeah. Right. It was sure for us. The, the gentleman who they felt they were targeting was a gentleman named Richard Lee. He was the the man who founded Oaksterdam, which was a uh, portmanteau of of Oakland and Amsterdam, obviously because they were the the cannabis center. But it all it did was actually was mobilize the the pro cannabis forces even more so. Because there just didn't seem to be any reason for it. Yes, it was it was a show of force, but again, nothing ever came of it. So all it did was, you know, six years down the road, California, you know, passed the proposition to make uh, recreational legal. So again, it might have caused a detour or a slowdown, but it certainly didn't stop 
the way that the country is going as far as their attitudes towards cannabis. And Oakland, with its dispensaries now, um, I know you talk a little bit about they have in this area that was completely depleted. They now have restaurants and two theaters and a bustling nightlife and an economic boom really in that area. Well, again, it was, their idea was, because for a while, Oakland was like, you know, Bronx of the West Coast. How do we get people to come here? How do we get people to come and be, you know, be comfortable to come here and buy our products and get things that will make them feel better and just whatever. And so that was the idea, was to create an area, to gentrify an area to, to bring attractions there, a music venue, a show venue, so that people would be comfortable coming there. And the gentrification, again, benefited everybody. It benefited that area of Oakland. It benefited the city's you know, uh, economy. And it benefited those who were in the cannabis industry who were selling their products. So all along the way, it has been an economic boost wherever it has kind of planted roots. Colorado, I don't even know, uh, they've done articles about the economic boom in Colorado that they trace back to the legalization. Someone was saying that the the housing market in Colorado is going through the roof. People are moving there, house goes on the market, it sells, and they point directly to the legalization of cannabis and all of the auxiliary things that come from that. It's it's an economic plus. So I think more and more states certainly will – if you see the state next to you suddenly having money to make better schools, to, to pay teachers more, to do whatever because of a cannabis industry, it's going to give that state second thoughts of why can't we do that too? Why do we want our residents going across state lines when we could have their money here? Well, yeah. How how do we not want those tax dollars and that benefit to our local economy and in all areas? So let's talk to a moment to the listener who maybe has been wondering about this industry. Maybe they or someone in their family is interested in um, getting a product. What are the sort of things you could advise so that they know they are going about it in a way that is in their best interests. Are you talking about what I mean, if you wanted to find a dispensary or you wanted to buy an edible product or you wanted to buy something online, um, what should they look for to know they're getting something that's of good quality and that they can have some trust in. I mean, that's one problem of not having more regulation at this point is that, you know, if you, especially if you weren't familiar with the industry at all, how to know what to buy or what, what you're getting. Well, as to uh, give a shameless plug, actually the companies in the great green gold rush, all of those companies are established. They have uh, a nationally recognized brand. They are known for their consistency and, and quality control. So one way to do it is to go to resources. Um, and where can people buy it. the book? <laughs> where else? Amazon. Amazon. Good to know. <laughs> Amazon. You know, places like, as we were talking, Greenflower Media, which is an online resource. Anything that is on that website, you can go to the bank on because the gentleman who runs it just knows what he's doing. And his point is to put out Information where people can get quality, accurate information so that they can, you know, become part of this growing industry, whether on a business end, whether on an entrepreneurial end, or whether because they would, they need the products to, for better health for themselves or to alleviate an issue that they have. So the best way to do it is to research, um, you can usually go to a, a site also like High Times. Even there's there's certain trade magazines for the industry. And just do a little bit of due diligence. But the companies that you've mentioned here and the companies that are in the book, those have been vetted and those are definitely quality, um, quality companies now. Right. And if you're in a state where, where it's already legal – 
whether medical or recreational, it's a little bit easier there because then people are advertising and you can be a consumer. It's just like, how do you know who the best um, you know, wine store is? Well, you go, you look, you, you ask around, you do a little you know, due diligence consumer shopping and you figure it out. For those who aren't, um, you just have to do a little research on your own. All right. Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. And the book is fantastic and it's well-written and easy to read and certainly provides a ton of information on something that I thought I knew a little about. Now I know a whole lot more. Thank you very much. This is Ellie Newman with That Got Me Thinking. I've been speaking to Kathleen Tracy, a co-author of The Great Green Gold Rush. This is KDPI 88.5 FM Kitchen. Kitchen.